last month we interviewed uh, Missouri State Rep Justin Hill uh, about his uh, tales while he was in the DEA. He um, told us a bunch of stories. And uh, during this time, uh, since uh, editing or release or whatever terminology, he has announced his resignation and uh, to hang with his family and more and stuff and moved to Florida. Kind of a looks like kind of like a retirement thing, but a working retirement, I guess. So um, I'd like to say thank you for your service um, for Missouri and um, God bless you, your family and the great state of Missouri. Republican Anthony Rogers has no previous political experience. Rogers, a comedian, is well known for a podcast called The Anthony Rogers Show. Hey man, this is Tommy Chong, and right now you're listening to The Anthony Rogers Show. Hey all you cool cats and kittens, it's Carol Baskin, and you are listening to The Anthony Rogers Show. Hey y'all, this is Kevin from Candlebox, you are listening to the funny man, Anthony Rogers. Hey, my name is Alex Sulkin, writer of TED and Family Guy, and you're listening to The Anthony Rogers Show. Lucky you. Hey, how are you doing? Um, without sponsors like Delta Extracts, this show, well, wouldn't exist. Um, they have these two gram uh, vape pens that basically, it's like smoking weed or marijuana or whatever without the federal crime because it's legal so uh, a little bit of the paranoia goes away um good product delta extracts check out uh their link in the description and buy some stuff support the sponsors welcome back to the greatest show in the entire universe um and today we have uh, missouri state rep justin hill uh formerly of the dea we're going to talk about some of that today crazy <laughs> yeah crazy is exactly it <laughs> so okay before we, we had some good stuff before we record so like uh what were you saying? So how did this all like, like what, what was, what was that all So, you know, uh, Anthony, I was, uh, I was a policeman. I was a uniformed policeman, uh, since 2001, I graduated the police Academy and all I ever wanted to do was be undercover. I just thought it was the coolest thing to like, you know, get into the minds of people, regardless of what the crime was. I wanted to get into the minds of, the, uh, of those people and, and make them think I wasn't the police. I just thought that was so cool. It took me, uh, four years as a patrolman to actually get to the position where I was invited to, to take the assignment to go undercover. And uh, I was undercover in the St. Louis region for, I guess, two years before I got noticed by the DEA. They came and scooped me up. So I was a I was a sworn you know DEA agent. They call them task force officers. Right. So basically you swear an oath and and uh, you, you get brought into their fold and you start doing federal investigations. And man, it was a great time. It was so eye-opening. And, and you know, that's actually one of the reasons I actually entered politics because I learned how powerful the government was whenever I was working there. But there, there's a lot of stories. What do you want to hear? No, that's crazy. So, okay, so you were basically a policeman, like, wow, just for like in Missouri, like basically, and then they picked you up from there? Yeah, so I was a, just cool. a, a policeman in the city of O'Fallon. You know, it's a eighty thousand people, and that's, uh, that's where I'm from. That's hilarious. That's like my hometown. That's hilarious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You might not have known me then, though. I mean, I hope not. I was. I was joking. No, that's crazy. So okay, so you're basically a police officer there, and then like uh, the government is like scoops in. They're like, okay, we got like like some like do they have like missions kind of or like I, I don't i've never been in your situation so i don't know how dumb so my job my job locally Seriously. yeah so I, my job locally when i was undercover uh basically use informants to to buy my buy up the chain right i wasn't interested in you know 
people with weed or, you know, even just one hit of ecstasy or anything like that. I wanted to get to the guy that could sell me a lot of quantity, right? Because that's where you, you're, you're with the major players. And uh, so I, you know, we would use informants. We do two or three buys. Um, and then we would, you know, the overt guys, guys that, you know, didn't have to hide their face. They would, they would actually go, make you know show up and and jump jump out on the guy or gal that was selling me and say hey you've been selling to an undercover <laughs> do you want to work it off do you want to join us and and introduce us to your guy Dude, and crazy. and most people would honestly most people are scared don't want to go to jail no i can see that i can see yeah, because by the time they're talking to us you know they've got three felony charges that that they could go to jail for yeah yeah. See, I, it makes me think the government hates hates competition because they go after like the the competitors. You know, they, like they go after like the uh, they got the people that make actual money. Like, they, yeah, I think that is interesting. So I did notice that they never went after like the dead like the deadbeat aspect of it, or they get them. To well, yeah, them. and, like and, a bag and, of and yeah, it's it is about money. Let me tell you because when Mostly. I did ultimately go to the DEA, um, I learned that it was the mission of that administrator at the time, the administrator I worked for. That's the person in DC, right? That runs all the. Uh, it was Asa Hutchinson uh, at that time, and that uh, that is the current governor of Arkansas. That's crazy. Uh, so, so Asa, the mission then was we want to seize assets. You know, that's how we're going to hurt drug trafficking organizations. We well, want, true. yeah, we want to we want to tax them. Essentially, that's a tax. When you seize assets, it's a tax, right? Well, people operating in in the black market, they don't pay taxes, right? So, so it's almost incentivizes keeping drugs illegal because that's the only way you can collect a tax on drugs. I mean, if people can grow it in their home, you know, and, and they're self-medicating or whatnot, you can't really tax that. You can't really enforce it, but man, it's, it's easy to keep it illegal and then steal someone's boat, mansion, Island in the Caribbean, stuff like that, you know? Yeah. That's crazy. So did you see a lot of that? Like you, like, yeah, so when I was when I went to DEA, and here's a funny story. Um, uh, my first wiretap. So I did wiretap investigations also at the DEA, and uh, you know that's whenever you get enough evidence um, that someone's using a phone to basically run a drug trafficking organization. That you know a judge says, okay, you can listen to the conversations for 30 days, and then in 30 days you have to give us an update. If you're getting more intelligence, then you can re-up it for another 30 days. You know, and every phone call you listen to, you got to you know it has to be relative to to a crime. You know, it's, you can't listen to every phone call if the first 10 seconds or whatever you know, isn't relative to the crime, you got to hang up, you know, and then you can check in maybe 30 minutes, 30 seconds later or a minute later. Now, these are, you know, I haven't paid attention to any court cases in the last, you know, five to 10 years. I mean, this is how it was back then. Some things might have changed, but my first wiretap, it was a big deal because uh, it was uh, it was a young white guy, cocaine dealer, and literally everybody was shocked that my target was a young white guy, cocaine dealer at, at DEA. And uh, so they were waiting to go, waiting to hear my first phone call on my wiretap. And, uh, and they were, they were, I mean, it, the first phone call that it went like this bad guy calls his brother and his brother says, Hey, did you hear they're putting Barack Obama on uh, Mount Rushmore? And and uh, he goes, no, you got to be kidding me. He goes, yeah, but they ran into a problem. They couldn't find a piece of coal, charcoal big enough. 
So they literally, the first call I had was a racist joke. And all my buddies, all my partners around me, you know, they're, they're friends, they're black guys. They, they were just rolling. So that, it was epic. And I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure the, the guys in DA still tell that story. So that that's indicative of St. Louis, right? That's crazy. So like, uh, so what was your, what was your exact position in all this? Like, like, what was your exact role in there? Uh, my, my role, uh, changed. So I, oh, yeah. I did. So it, it, so if they needed an undercover, I would do it because DEA agents weren't allowed to, it's literally in their policy. They can't buy undercover. So they'd use, you know, guy with experience, you know, a task force officer that's technically a, uh, employee of the police department. Um, they, uh, then I would do wiretaps, right? If it was my case, I would sit and listen on the phone. I would run the, run the, um, uh, the investigation i might send some guys out on the street to do surveillance if i if he makes a clear he makes a call and says hey i'm i'm coming you know to pick up whatever you know i'll call my guys and say hey he's going to make a pickup go get go get him on surveillance we take photographs you know stuff like that um uh, i would also do interdiction so if there's a load of you know marijuana or uh coming up highway 44 that was stopped i would respond and I would interview the driver and I would try to convince them to do a controlled delivery where we would deliver it to the, to the person taking delivery. And then we'd take the person down. That's uh, crazy. so, we, so yeah, like, uh, when you like, uh, sorry, like you covered so much shit. I would have break it down a little bit. Like, so, <laughs> so, uh, when you go like undercover, like, is it, that's basically, that seems like acting or something like, so do you like buddy up with these people? You look at their social media. Like, how do you, how do you kind of like buddy up with these people? Like, uh, so, so this was when social media wasn't that big, right? It was Ooh, 2005. Okay. Uh, you know, we were, I think I was using, uh, MySpace. like no one knew what MySpace was. And I would, I would always look on MySpace because dudes that are in the, in the business of, you know, slinging uh, cocaine or whatnot, they, they all think they're rap stars, you know? And so they go on flashing money and stuff. Yeah, they go. Yeah, they go on MySpace, flash money, flash, show, show us pictures of their cars and stuff like that. Um, and that, I mean, that was before face, Facebook or any others was kind of a big deal, but yeah, social media is a, a huge tool, huge tool. Yeah. I feel like uh, I posted like a, a bunch of like stacks of like fake money one time that looked like, like hundreds of thousands of dollars. And I feel like a, a couple of people were like checking out the, like they add, like a bunch of suspect people added me on Instagram. Like after that, like, I think they like, I think they're probably looking for shit like that. one was just a joke. You know I mean, like, I mean, it is, so it, is it is funny how, how really dumb we are <laughs> it's humans man i think both sides i think you know probably make well yeah crazy. for sure like once i just sure. like you're saying you're saying these guys are just posting their profits on the fucking internet it's hilarious like i yeah. mean it's just as bad no it's, but, it's humans man it's ego it's everything you know but back then uh the job was yeah it was acting because here here you got somebody that is um this being brought a stranger is being brought to them by somebody that they sell drugs to Right. And so I have to convince them I'm not the police because the nature of what they're doing anyway. Right. They're always going to uh, be skeptical. Am I selling to the police? And you look right? like the police. Like if I was like, if I, if I was like a Coke Lord guy yeah. or whatever, I'd be like, that guy's a cop. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I still can't get rid of that. It, it's funny. Like <laughs> someone even called me out yesterday. I haven't been a policeman for eight years. That's crazy. Uh, it's just, I guess, it, you know, I did it so long, I kind of carried that vibe, I guess. But uh, <laughs> I'd um, say so, dude. I, that's crazy. They even like, so, like, what, like, like, would you dress different, or like, how do you like just use me? These people here, around. Yeah, like, this, this what's so funny is because when I when I first went undercover, I went off to school in Nebraska. It's it, it's not always in Nebraska, but they move it around the country. This time is in Nebraska, 
And I got my ear pierced and I grew out my hair. I grew out a long goatee, went and bought a bunch of shitty clothes. And, uh, and I get back and I start trying to buy, buy some little stuff just to kind of develop some informants. I'm, I'm buying weed. I don't care. Like get right? me a game somehow. Yeah. You're like, what do you got? Like, <laughs> right. <laughs> but yeah. I'm six, I'm six foot four. And I had, I had a long ass goatee. I got shitty clothes and I got an earring in. I was scaring these, these kids essentially that were selling, they were trying to sell me dope. I couldn't buy it because I was so scary. So, so after about six months, I cleaned it up. I started wearing, you know, better clothes. I, I trimmed the goatee, you know, I, I cut my hair and it was all, it was game on, man. And I found my niche. I, I bought mostly cocaine and ecstasy back then. It, it was That's huge. Crazy. And then, and then after that cocaine ecstasy wave, it, it was like crack cocaine. And then, uh, and then I ended up finishing up on heroin. Heroin was, was just going crazy on my way out. Yeah. Uh, that and fentanyl. So it just kind of you change with the time. You change the look with the crowd. I mean, there was one time I was I was buying from some Hispanics, so I would I would go buy some clothes that would fit in with that kind of kind of look, and uh, did pretty good. That's hilarious. <laughs> what would you meet? You just meet these people out random, like you're like at a bar or something, or like what? If, like, uh, you know, sometimes you go do that. Not as often as getting introduced, right? Okay. Um, oh, so you meet like one person and you just ride that out, basically. Yeah, like I yeah. like if I if we get charged on somebody, I I call you know you have to manage them like a client. You know, I call them like three times a week, and uh, you know, um, sorry, I had to shut that phone off. Um, call them three times a week, saying, "Hey, you know, you got two more people you got to introduce me to." You know, and just constantly, constantly hound them, and 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 then once they introduce me to somebody, you know, a lot of times you had two informants. One informant introduced you to the other, but they don't know you're working together. Uh huh. Yeah, I heard, I heard a lot of stories like that. Like they'd be like feds all pulling guns on each other in places. Like, like I heard like, like in just certain investigations, I heard about that, and that's that's crazy to think about. Like how everybody's just, I mean, that's I mean, that's how strong the government is. They have the, they have the most funding. I mean, it makes sense, you know. Yeah, it was really, it wasn't as much funding though. It was more um, holding that stick. You know, yeah. nobody wants to go to jail, and uh, you know, it, yeah. it's it's easier to to put someone else in the hot seat, right? Yeah, so it's, they just keep telling all the way up the line, basically. And then you find somebody you're like, okay, this guy's big enough. Like, guy's so here's like, here's here's something though that's wild is one time we were doing a case with some big Mexican drug trafficking organizations, um, and and we were so high up locally that you know the next step was outside the country, huh. right? And um, and me, I, I I wouldn't go outside the country. They would use other agents to go outside the country, but you'd have to run it by like the intelligence gathering folks. And um, there was on one occasion where we were so high, the, the Department of State told an agent, no, you guys are done, good job. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's wild when, when you cross borders, it's, it, everything changes, man. It's just a different set of rules. Yeah, yeah, I was finding out like in a lot of like instances, like like the higher up, like government organizations were actually trafficking drugs. So so it's like like CIA like in bases and stuff were using for like humans and like drugs and stuff, which is like would get people killed for saying the nineties. Like <laughs> like, straight, yeah. like if you if you said that in nineteen ninety, you got killed. But uh, but uh, but I think like so, so you had like I mean same with the FBI with the pedophile rings. You you had like um all those guys like look at all these symbols and then it finds out it's their bosses. Like they're like like, yeah. Yeah, like like basically you had with all that like uh, PizzaGate stuff, you know. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, you know, I've been out for a while though, so I don't, I don't, I, I wish I knew how how it was 
now, you know, with, changed with the amount of years too. Yeah. Dude, so much has changed. I like, you know, I used to do bulk currency seizures. I, I would get, you know, we would seize $2 million in cash on interstate 70. That's right? crazy. And then, which is about 80 pounds, by the way. <laughs> uh, so, so, um, I, I would have to ultimately get warrants on the guy that, that was smuggling cash. Right. And I'd have to fly across the country and go put cuffs on him, you know, and, 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 and turn them into the marshals. But that was back in the day where you actually had to carry the cash. But now if you want to move money, mass amounts of money, I'm guessing someone's just going to use cryptocurrency, you know, yeah, and send yeah. it to a wallet. I mean, because that's untraceable. Hello. Let's talk to you about one of our sponsors. Yeah. Liquid gummies. They are Delta 9, THC. These are strawberry flavored. I just ate one. I'm not going to eat another one. <laughs> They're kind of strong. These are awesome. Get you some. Link in the description or Google liquid gummies or go to Leaf New York. I mean, they sell them there too. Um, get some of these if you're of age and whatever laws in your land, follow them. But these are legal THC ones. So, I mean, even if even in, these are federally legal. So you're not worried about the feds when you're getting messed up or whatever. I don't know what you're worried about, but sometimes that's a concern. These are delicious. They're awesome. And I am proud to say they are a sponsor of the Anthony Rogers show. Yeah, I feel I feel like this IP address. If I was a criminal, I wouldn't use anything digital, I feel like. But I, like it'd be the worst time to be a criminal ever. I couldn't even imagine being a criminal today. Like you'd have to do so much shit. Like I don't even know how you can get away with it today. Everything's so monitored, man. Like yeah, it is monitored, but man, you can still, I mean, go use a hard wallet and train and, and literally just confirm the amount on the hard wallet, hand it to someone else. And you just gave someone $2 million. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. Damn. Yeah. No, that's true. I never thought about that. That's crazy. And, it, and it's that big versus 80 pound, a 80 pound bag of money. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And that's what you have to ship. And if you don't know what you're looking for, I mean, that's like, you'll never find it. You know? I know, never. So yeah, it, it, the game has to be totally different. Back then, also, you know, what was new is we were using GPS tracking devices, and uh, you know, um, we would we would put them on in little uh, pelican cases with magnets on, and we'd slap on them the on the bottom, bottom of a car. Well, one yeah. time, uh, one time I was this the St. Louis area's largest weed dealer. I mean, he was responsible for hundreds of pounds a week. Um, he he found my device. And he drove over the Alton Bridge and threw it in the Mississippi River. <laughs> so I go to check on it, and I'm like, "Ah, oh, damn! It's floating down the Mississippi River." And then all of a sudden, you know, it it costs money. So like, the boss is not happy we lost a device. But I said, "Wait a minute, boss! The map's showing it's going upriver." <laughs> so I was like, "Man, it's got to be on a boat or something, right?" So. So we get in the car and, and we're looking at the laptop, uh, pinging the location of this device. And sure shit, it's still upriver. We're driving up there and it's in the lock and dam up by Alton. That's crazy. So, so we, we go up to the, the Army Corps engineers and we tell them, hey, keep the lock closed. We have a device inside there that we need to get to. So they put us on a boat. They let us in the lock, uh, even out the water levels, right? And here's a little fishing boat with two guys on it. And here's me and my partner, big guys, you know, wearing plain clothes. Uh, and we just, we pull up to them in the lock and damn boat to boat. We're like, gentlemen, you got a piece of property that belongs to the U.S. government. We'd like it back. And they were scared shitless, man. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah, I know. I bet. That's like some X-Files shit like happening to them, you know. <laughs> right. just like see people show up. They're like, what? 
Yeah, like in the lock and dam, and, and he's shaking when he's handing it back to me. He's, uh, you know, he's like, we just found it floating in the river, you know, and, I, you know, big magnets just, you know, it stuck to the hole of their boat. So they, they picked it. They didn't know what it was, but they thought it fell out of the sky. That's hilarious. Yeah, no, that's crazy. So a boat picked it up. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's another uh, story that's probably uh, gone around DEA for years. It's uh, I'm always the one uh, creating these stories. <laughs> that's how you got into politics, I guess. Like the folklore continues. Like so, the, but that's part of the reason I got in politics. You know, I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty awesome being on that that side and having all that power and you know the full force of the of the federal government behind you. But what what I discovered, you know, whenever I first turned on that wiretap and I'm listening to people's, you know, like right now, this conversation could be listened to real time. Oh, I bet it is. No, I bet it. Yeah. And and, uh, and and when I learned that the government has that ability, has that power, I was just like, man, it's freaked me out a little bit. And plus, they they were also that was during the FISA courts. They also had like courts over in the ocean, you know, where there was no jurisdiction, and they were using that court to spy on Americans. And so, if I needed information without getting a warrant. I couldn't have it directly. They have a close like group of people um, that w- there would be like one guy in the St. Louis office that could have access, you know, and then they would relay the information to me if I hit a dead end, you know, and I was just like, man, this is just out of hand. So that's kind of the part of the reason I ran for office. You know, I'm a pretty liberty minded uh, individual, you know, um, especially it's just unheard of going from being undercover and, and fighting the drug war to coming into working in politics. And now, you know, you know, being a Liberty minded guy, you know, trying to like get government off people's backs. So it's just I've come full circle, man. Well, I think it just happens with age. You just kind of like evolve and like into different roles. You know, I think it's good. It'll just continue for a guy. Like if you keep working hard, you know, I mean, it's crazy. Like you'll just keep doing awesome shit. But like, if that's all, you know I mean, that's like where your head's at and that's like where your ambition's at, you know, just keep doing like shit like that. Like, yeah, I mean, I've been in public service now for 20 years, and uh, it 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 is it is tough, right? Because my family gets drugged through me with it, you know. And I got kids, and you know, I was in I was in D.C. on January 6th, so that was that was crazy. I mean, I had 700 freaking threats. I had the the media coming after me and just making up crap left and right. You know, uh, no one's reading stories. They only see fake headlines. So I had to deal with that. I got like three retractions and a public apology from Fox that was ran live for a week. Um, it, it was just nuts. You know, and, and anytime you're in public office, you know, you got to kind of deal with that stuff that, that other people just don't know how it really affects a family. So for someone to stay in politics as long as Joe Biden, I mean, you got to be crazy. You got to absolutely be out of your mind. Sixty something years of that that guy's been in office. Well, I think a lot of those guys are blackmailed. Like, are you talking about how the government can like listen to everything on our devices? So, like, that. I think China can. I think multiple people can. I think basically a lot of these older guys got blackmailed super hard because they're just living super shitty lives with a recording device around them. And like, you know, yeah. like, like yeah. I think a lot of these guys are blackmailed, man. I think I think I think Biden's one of them. I mean, I think a lot of those guys are just. I mean, they just have so much blackmail on these dudes, man. Because like. Their generation didn't even see the surveillance in their pocket coming, man. Yeah, and and then that those people that have the the dirt, they also have the money, right? Yeah. And and yeah, it yeah. makes it easier to keep people in office. You know, it's it not easy. Like. It's not easy being a guy like me and winning election after election after election because I got to get I got to raise money from normal Joe. You know, like yeah, yeah. If if I were if I were a lobbyist whore, I would it would be a lot easier. And that and honestly, that there's something to that because the 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 road less traveled you know is just 
in politics, man, it's too hard. It, you know, most people take the easy route and they take the money and they, they like to, they like the lifestyle. They like to stay in office, man. I want to, I want to be a private citizen again one day. You know, I want, I want my kids to have a normal life. Yeah. I think a lot of these guys is the first time they've ever been cool too. So it just goes to their head and they're easy to manipulate. Like, you know, it's like, it's easy. Absolutely. There's like, oh, wow. They never did anything. Like they've never been anything like not athlete, not fucking, you know, I mean, they never had a pop off. They're just like, they're like, they went in office or something like that. And I go, like, oh, wow. I'm so special, you know. <laughs> You're absolutely right. This is the greatest thing someone will ever do. And really, honestly, it's not that hard getting elected by 7,000 people, you know, or, or yeah. you know, 50,000 people if you're in the in Missouri Senate. It's just it's just not that hard. And then when you get there, you think you are somebody. No, I, I was in one election and I, I got second place and I was losing enough to think I'd win. So I, I thought it was way easier. It's like, uh, like, like the primary is easy, and then like after that, you're just like, oh, you have to convince all these people that think Republicans are racist to vote racist. It's like, it's like a fucking like, uh, it's like a what is it? Uh, I don't know. What's that show? Those four dudes are like friends, and they're like trying to do missions or whatever. They're, like, they're always like, oh yeah, like I forgot what it's called. Like you know what I'm talking about? No, I don't. I wish I had time to watch TV. <laughs> like, I don't watch TV. No, it's just, it's just impractical jokers. Impractical jokers. If you look at the oh, impractical yeah, jokers great. episode. I get people to vote Republican in St. Louis is like in Practical Jokers episode. That's what it feels like. You're just like, you're literally like trying to convince these people. You're like, yeah, dude, like you're in a good area. Everybody's Republican out there. Like, I'm like, uh, your district, I mean, you got a good district. You just got to win your primary. Yeah, but here, so here's what happens though, man, because if you go in St. Louis City and you have a heart to heart conversation with somebody in North City that, you know, they hate their kids' schools, they know their kids aren't going to have a chance to get out of there, they hate the crime that they have to live with. You know what? they would vote Republican all day, every day. They agree with the policies. They do. They, they vote against their interests. They, they think Republicans but, are racist, and that's all they think. Yes. They don't know and, anything but, else. But it's not even that. They, they're they just, they're afraid to go against the grain. They don't want to be an Uncle Tom. You know, they they just, True, they're yeah. so scared of what their community will do to them. And and I feel I feel so sorry because... There are, there are, I mean, we have great policies that we, we've been fighting for that would save so many people out of St. Louis City, but they just don't care enough. I mean, they care about the Democratic Party's uh, the future, you know? Yeah, they they're going to swing back and forth. It needs to go back and forth. Because I think, I think there's, ah, there's Democrats with hearts in the right spot out here, but most of them are yes. radicalized. Most of them are radicalized, though. Like, it seems but, like. But, you know, like they would argue that we're radicalized, too, right? I don't think, I think I'm just normal. I think like to where like, like I'm just like a dude who like the Republican values like s tend to like, like, like stick to what I like grew up around and stuff maybe or something. But like, I just, I just feel like they're like, in, they're like the ones burning down buildings. I'm just kind of like, what? Right. I mean, it's just like, I feel like that's way more radical than like, than like, I don't know, existing. Well, my, my father is a hardcore Democrat. Well, how old is he? I, and he's 76. His generation had good Democrats though. Like I think I, those older guys, I mean, it makes sense more. Yeah, but I, you know, I used to be able to have conversations about this with them and say, Dad, the Democrat Party is not what it used to be. You know, now my my dad's like literally fighting for Marxism. They all are, <laughs> you man. know, I, and, and he doesn't even know it. He didn't see the progression. But, man, he's constantly programmed every day. He sits in front of that TV and watches CNN all day, every day. And I'm just like, turn off your TV and let's talk in two weeks. You know, it, it's almost that bad where you have to unplug and wait that long to just let shit get out of your head that, yeah. that you know, they're programming you to watch. It's nuts. No, oh, yeah. And it's like disinformation now. It's all just like it's everyone's watching a different media bubble, you know, like everyone's got like 
like there's so many different platforms and shows and options and videos and audio and like all this stuff. So like everybody's in their own world and that's where, like, and they view the world differently. And I think that's a lot of the problem, brother. Yeah. And the, in the, in the speed of information nowadays, man, it goes so fast. The damage is done. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in, in a matter of minutes, especially somebody like you that has a million followers, you know, you, you have a lot of influence. You can post one thing and it's in front of so many people. It's hard to bring it back. Right. It used to be a lot easier, man. It used to be like, they, like, like before we started deleting people like that, that were funny. Like they used to, they used to let us just run and shit. <laughs> like, like, it was, like it was like, it used to be way more fun, man. Like now it's just like, like you say they're wrong. I called somebody a retard and like they delete my Twitter, you know, it's like, what the fuck? Like, it's just like, it's, it's nuts, man. I did the same thing. I left Twitter. I was like, this is, this is stupid. You can't, you don't even know who's who you can be totally anonymous. I can make 10 Twitter handles and, and there are just too many bots and stuff. So yeah, I just kind of keep it on uh, two platforms right now. That's all right. Yeah. But, I think that's where, I mean, that's where your mark, your market's on Facebook. I mean, your voters are on Facebook probably and Instagram. I mean, I think it's new too. I mean, I think that's like, that's good too. But I mean, you're all, all your voters are on Facebook for sure. Uh, absolutely. It's, it's the demographic, right? It's the voting demographic, man. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I would love to have been an undercover cop in, on Facebook right now because, you know, Facebook actually told law enforcement to stop using them as a tool to go after people <laughs> because, because law enforcement was, I think it was out in California. Law enforcement uh, was setting up fake identities on Facebook, which violates their terms of service. Right. Yeah. And to, to basically go after people. So, no, I mean, it's probably easy. Almost these people just brag. I mean, like a lot of those guys, I mean, all those guys probably were poor as fuck and started making money. And they're like, Oh, look how much money I have. I'm a, I'm a thousand there now, you know? And then fucking <laughs> a thousandaire. <laughs> you know, that's what they, that's what a lot of those guys are. There's like four kids, like TV made it like they just imitated their favorite rapper and thought that like that's what life was, but they didn't realize the consequences of that, and, like how like gangster rap's probably just a commercial for the privatized prison system. <laughs> like, I mean, like realistically, it's like if you end up if you mimic that, I mean that's where you end up, really, you know. It's like oh, weird. Man. Yeah. Gentleman from St. Charles County. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. I also have a point of personal privilege. Proceed, gentlemen. Thank you. You know, I've never been lost for words, but the last couple of days, it really has hit me kind of hard, and I'm like, what the heck am I going to say? A lot of you are texting and calling saying, I cannot wait for your last speech. I cannot wait to find out who you are going to nail. But, um, you know, it, it's been fun. Two funny things happened. A good, good, for all of you, you know, a good way to start a speech, especially one going out, is tell a joke or two. Two funny things happened this week. I parked in the garage without my placard hanging on my rear view mirror. I was laughed my butt off as I did it. And a convicted felon who proclaims to be a uh, journalist said that I wasn't a statesman. That made me really laugh. Um, you know, Mr. Speaker, one thing I learned over the last seven years, because, you know, this is my last day in the Missouri legislature, and what an honor. But uh, the last couple of years especially, it really opened my eyes to the magnifying glass that's on this building and on this crowd. And who holds the magnifying glass? Because, you know, people outside of this building, they think we really hate each other's guts across the aisle. They really think, now there's some, I gotta admit, some of you I don't like. But I would save you from a burning building. 
Some of you on the other side of the aisle, we've had to hide our friendships. You know, so we are a little guilty of, uh, of, of what's been going on the last couple of years. But uh, it's important to remember who holds that magnifying glass. And that magnifying glass is the media. And when I gave my, my official press release on my resi impending resignation, I didn't talk to a soul. I simply sent that out. And Mr. Speakers and my fellow members, my colleagues, I wouldn't, I would venture to guess there were at least 10 different headlines that had no ounce of truth in them. And they're forever, they're on the internet. One made me laugh, it was from Newsweek. Can you believe that? A lowly state rep from Missouri caught the eye of Newsweek? So that, that, that journalist, I had to email that journalist because her headline said, just one year into his job, he resigned. And so I looked her up and I said, you know, and I saw she was relative, recently a student. And I said, hey, listen, I know we're in the clickbait era. I know a, a, a really important headline is, is going to get you views. But a lot of people don't read stories anymore, Mr. Speaker, and especially journalists don't investigate anymore. And I really want to see that change because it's really causing a great divide in this nation. You know, I'm a little heartbroken today because, you know, as I leave, as I depart, there's, there's a friend here, that, well, there's a friend not here, that I really wanted to let everyone know, come out of the closet that I'm friends with. One, one of probably the least recognizable friendship on this floor. And I'd hate to throw him under the bus because it could really hurt him in his, uh, among his colleagues. But Representative Meredith, he and I have had some really heartfelt discussions back and forth about our families, about policy, about our dedication to public office. And unfortunately, he's sick. And I know, hopefully he's listening, but I really appreciate his friendship. The lady from St. Louis County came and gave me a hug before... Uh, we got on this floor today. I really appreciate her friendship. When I was injured, her and her husband helped carry me off the field last year when I tore a calf muscle. She drove me all the way home in like one of the most torrential downpours, driving my gas-guzzling vehicle. The whole time I couldn't help but laugh that she's driving like a vehicle gets eight miles of the gallon. And I know that was bothering her, but I really appreciate you. I really appreciate everybody in here. We have a lot of differences. You know, I, I was one of the leaders of the conservative caucus, and I know I really got on a lot of people's nerves. Because, you know, when I came up here, I didn't come up here to, to make friends. I really didn't. I told myself I wasn't going to do it, but I failed. That's, that's, that's hard for me to accept, failure. I made some really good friends up here. Everybody on this floor will leave others with an impression. Good, bad, or indifferent, we all change each other's lives. You have all changed mine. I have laughed at you. I've laughed with you. I've argued with you. We've, I mean, we've gone neck to neck. I mean, it's just been just a crazy time, but what an honor to serve in this building. I don't want anybody to think that, because yes, opportunities change in our lives, and I'm going to be relocating to another state that has no income tax.
or a state that has educational freedom where that state's going to give me $40,000 for my kids to choose the school they get to go to. And a state where workers aren't compelled to join a union. And, and it breaks my heart because I really fought for that here. One out of three ain't bad, though, Mr. Speaker. Last year, when we passed the ESAs, that was the pivotal moment of my legislative career. And it wasn't even my bill. But I loved the charade we had to play to get it done over in that awful Senate. Because that's really, people don't understand, looking under this microscope or this magnifying glass, that's really how things happen here. We have so many special interests in this building that when it's time to make law for people in this state to change their lives for the better, we have to put on charades. And we did it last year. One of the most proudest moments, man. I remember giving hugs after that. I mean, it was just incredible. And I can only pray to God that the Supreme Court doesn't legislate it away. Because if there's one issue that we need to fix in this state, it's that super legislature across the road. And unfortunately, we're term limited. And I'm guilty. I am guilty of term limits. I voted for term limits. And it's the one vote I wish I could take back as a citizen of this state because the people term limited themselves. They're not term limited over there. They're not term limited up there. The people are term limited. And that's how bad policies like prescription drug monitoring gets done. And deaths across the state go sky high because they can't get their medicine, so they go to fentanyl. We've had that argument. But the reason that passed is because of term limits, because a fourth of this body had no clue for the last seven years of the testimony and the trials we went through to prove that policy. Term limits are killing people in this state, literally. But back to the courts. If we don't undo that, Mr. Speaker... We'll never have voter ID. We passed it here. We made a law for voter ID, and the super legislature across the street said, oh, it's unconstitutional. While in other states, it's not. And we have voter, voter fraud issues in this state. I just got word from my Secretary of State that even in my own county, there are two cases where somebody voted in St. Charles County and in the state of Florida, the same person. Now, it's a rumor, I haven't confirmed this, that the St. Charles County prosecuting attorney isn't going to prosecute that, and I won't believe it until I hear it from him. But if that's the case, then what are we here for if we can't even verify our voters in this state? And Medicaid expansion. We passed a law here on Medicaid expansion. We didn't want it, right? So they go to the initiative petition process and go around this legislature. And I know my friends on the other side of the aisle don't agree with this, and that's okay. But it's my parting speech, not theirs. The initiative petition process is a constitutional crisis. The people are always going to vote for things that sound good. But they're not down here listening to the special interests that are funding 
those initiative petition processes. Like it is, it is, we're literally having special interests write laws that benefit themselves, and they propose it to the voters of the state and say, look, wouldn't this be good? And we are elected to stop stuff like that. How can we stop it if we have such a low bar to allow special interests to change our Constitution? I mean, put it right there in the chapter next to bingo, for crying out loud. Anyway, um, I would bring up right to work, Mr. Speaker, but, I mean, that's a foregone conclusion right now. Um, I really need to talk about the big thing the media has been waiting. What's the big, scary thing that he's really resigning for? You know, what's, what's, the, what's the secret? Well, the secret is right behind me. These, these four boys and my wife... That's the big secret of why I'm resigning. Because after 20 years in public service, sometimes you have to put others first. And um, last fall, I realized that, you know, it's been about me and my family for the last 20 years. I got so drunk on, on being a policeman and public service, and I just, sometimes you got to stop and say, listen, what if I put these people through? My ch you know as well as I do. Like, this is not an easy job. I was undercover buying heroin, for crying out loud, in St. Louis City. I mean, I've been near death several times. This is a more dangerous job, if you ask me, because any day of the week could just go foul. And you have to get your family out of your house because of 700 death threats. You know, they've been through a lot. Um, and so I realized this fall, you know, it's time. There's nothing I can do this session that, that is that's going to help. Literally, I've, I've laid it all on this, on this floor, and I think everyone would agree with that. I've fought for everything that I've uh, believed in. I've, I've done everything I said I'd do. And I just want to show these boys right here that mean the most to me in the world that sometimes you got to know when to know when to fold them, right? And and the timing's perfect. So I got to tell you, my wife—they don't remember me as a policeman, but my wife does. You know, those three, four a.m. Uh, phone calls. You know, where she was just praying it wasn't someone else calling her that I wasn't coming home, but it was me saying, "Hey, I'm going to be late again. I got to go put evidence in the locker before I come home." And then, and then leaving January to May. This is quite a sacrifice. So, thank you. Those are some awesome boys. And, um, and I've had three assistants over the last four years. I know I'm getting on my time limit, but y'all are still listening. Three assistants over the, over the last three years, and um, they've all been great. And um, the one uh, I'm probably most proud of is the uh, Ukrainian national that I hired to be the first foreign L.A. in the building. He's done a great job. You know, his English wasn't the greatest. Sometimes I get phone calls in my office, and they'd think they called Russia. And this was right around Russian collusion. And so uh, it, was, it was kind of funny. We laughed about it a little bit, but I said, no, you're, listen, you got to improve your English. I mean, so I sent him to English classes, Mr. Speaker, and he didn't complain one bit. He loved every minute of it. He loves being up here. 
He's the first and only, I guarantee it, Igor that works for the state of Missouri. But uh, I, I owe a debt of gratitude for you, Igor. You've been a wonderful sidekick, very, very loyal, and that matters a lot in this building. He's going to stick around for a while, so you guys, uh, maybe he can bust some knees for you guys. That was a joke. Anyway, um, it's been an honor, guys. I truly am going to miss you all. I know I'll see you again. Um, Mr. Speaker, we came in together, and I'm beating you out. <laughs> so I'd just like to stay a couple of uh, steps ahead of you. I am term limiting myself. We don't need term limits. I'll leave it at that. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Thank you, gentlemen.